Are we awake? <laughs> it's a great way to start the service. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys, for the worship introduction. Uh, looking forward to Psalm 57. That's where we're going to park uh, this morning. Last week, we looked at Psalm 56. And we said it was an occasion in which uh, David, before his kingship, he goes from the frying pan to the fire. Saul's threatening him at home, trying to kill him. He flees to Gath in the Philistine arena, and they recognize him, and he's afraid he's going to lose his life or liberty there as well. And it was this occasion of seeing God interact with David between a rock and a hard place. That was sort of the theme. Today we're going to look at a companion song, Psalm 57. And it actually shares quite a bit in common with Psalm 56, so some of it may sound redundant. It's also got some additional themes that we'll look at, so there's enough distinctions, I think, that you'll see that it's helpful as well. And uh, this is David fleeing again. So the background for Psalm 57 comes out of 1 Samuel 24. And if you remember the story there, uh, David's fleeing and he's hiding with some of his guys in a cave near En Gedi. So he's sort of in the wilderness south of Jerusalem on the western shore of the Dead Sea. And lo and behold, just the way God works things out, Saul and his men who are chasing David, Saul goes to relieve himself in the cave. A scripture is nothing other than blunt and straightforward sometimes. So that's, that's what's going on. David and his guys are hiding in the back of the cave. And David's guys say to him, Yahweh, God has put Saul in your power. You should take his life right now. But David tells his men, Saul has been anointed by God himself as king, and I'm not about to raise my hand against him. But he does go up and he cuts off part of his robe. So when Saul has finished his business and left the cave, David gives him a little bit of time. He's got some distance. David comes out and hollers so Saul hears him. And he shows him the bit of robe and says, you were in my hand to do you harm, and if I wanted to, I would have. And showing you this piece of robe I cut off of your garment is proof I could have killed you and I didn't. He's basically telling Saul, I'm not your problem, but God, God take vengeance on you, I'm not going to. So that's the setting. Saul says in the moment, uh, you're more righteous than me and I'll quit chasing you. And that lasts for a little while. And then it starts up again. So that's the background for Psalm 57. This is somewhat interesting, a little distinct from some of the other Psalms. This is a, a lament. So David's calling out to God in his need. We'll talk about that in just a second. So he's calling out to God in his need on one hand. But then it, it ends in this crazy peon of praise. So this song is both lament and praise. It combines those two in a way that many songs do not. Alan Ross's summary of the psalm is this. He says, Using as his refrain the desire for God to be exalted, the psalmist calls out for salvation by divine intervention from the destructive enemies and then sings a song of triumph to God's loyal love and truth in the full expectation that the wicked will be caught in their own snare. So that's the synopsis or the summary we're going to look at the psalm in four sections. Uh, David's prayer for help. A second is confidence in God's deliverance. Third, a little bit of the challenges he faces. He doesn't actually tell us a lot, but he gives us some descriptive language about what that looked like or felt like. And then his personal commitment, which is where we'll wind up, to praise God along with his desire to see 
God praised in all the earth. So it really ends on this super high note. Starts with begging God for mercy. Ends on this great call to praise. So hopefully your Bibles or apps are open. Psalm 57, the line of introduction there says, To the choir master, so David wrote, of this experience to be shared or sung by other believers in the congregation. It says, according to do not destroy, again, some kind of musical assignment that they knew and we don't. And then it says, it's a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. We've said we're not sure what miktam means, but they're always by David, and they always include elements of lament, as this one does. So starting there in verse 1, like Psalm 51 and 56, Psalm 57 starts with exactly the same language. And in the Hebrew, it's quite cryptic. It's just mercy, God. It gets expanded a little bit in our English translations, but it's cryptic. It's just this quick call, I need help, and it's mercy, God. So in the ESV, as we're reading this morning, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So you've got to love this description of what does it look like or feel like to David to seek refuge or help from God. So he's got this phrase, under the shadow of your wings until the storm pass by. So he's feeling strung out and hung out and Saul's on the, on a, the predator chasing him again. And he says, Lord, I want to humble myself and like a little chick, I want to run under your wings where there's safety and protection. And this imagery is really humble on one hand, but it's also familiar to David. Deuteronomy 32, Moses describes God's care for Israel. He calls him Jacob in the passage, but he says this, uh, God encircled him, Israel. God cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. So David would have known this passage. And here it's not a hen, but it's an eagle. But it's an eagle using its wings to comfort its youngs or to protect them, to hold them up. And so I suspect that passage was in David's mind as he's talking about what kind of help I want from God. I want to be like that little eaglet that's sheltered under the parent, the very capable parent, of course. Uh, Ruth brings up this same phrase, Boaz says to Ruth, of the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And remember, that's David's heritage. You remember Ruth and Boaz are, are his forebears. So in the language of his, I think it's great-grandmother, David's bringing up that same theme that Boaz brought up, that we're seeking shelter, you're seeking shelter, coming from Moab to Israel, not just a geographical setting, but you're seeking shelter under God himself. And then last, Matthew 23, 37 brings this up again and this is Jesus speaking of Jerusalem and this is by the way remember Matthew 23 is right before his suffering so he knows he's been rejected by Jerusalem even though he's got this triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday he knows the nation is rejecting him and it's in light of that Jesus brings up that same imagery when he says 
how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus says to his people, this is what I would have done. I would have been that shelter for you that David wanted. I would have been like that hen and you would have come unto me and I would have covered you and I would have protected you, but you've said no. So, David's calling out for mercy and he's looking for shelter in God. And we want to point this out. I want to spend a little bit of time on this. David's need for mercy and his cries to God for mercy were not unusual. They were the norm. So before, last week in Psalm 56, we said it's from one point to another. It's sort of cryptic. I was here, I had trouble. I went over here, I had trouble. Psalm 57 is more, this is the normal part of life. I'm fleeing from Saul for my life. It's the norm. So, from 1 Samuel 18, verse 9, the text says this, Saul looked with suspicion on David from that day on. So from 18, verse 9, through the end of 1 Samuel, David is not safe from Saul till Saul dies. For the rest of that book, he's on the run. It's about eight years, some think up to ten years, but for eight to ten years, David is not safe And he's either fleeing from Saul within the land of promise or he's outside the land of promise so Saul can't persecute him. So for eight to ten years, David on the run is the norm. It's not the exception. It's not something that's punctuated occasionally. It's the norm. And think of of the context in which this is happening. You know, sometimes do you not find if something hard in life happens to you, you ask God why, it seems like this shouldn't be going on. It's sort of the exception, but you're still, we, we long for peace and we long for security. Well, this becomes the norm for David, and David lives under that covenant, you remember. God said, if you obey me, if you do things my way, I will bless you. And David's, David's living there and he's saying, Lord, I'm obeying you, I'm following you, but I'm not able to get the blessing because of this persecution. David should be able to expect blessing and peace, but he can't. Now contrast that with our general expectations today. What's our expectation generally? Blue skies and green lights, right? That that life should be good, and when it's not, we think that's unusual. But this is spoken, think of, uh, I'm going to get you in 2 Timothy here in just a second. We don't live under that covenant in which the expectation should be peace you know, uh, descendants and long life and everything's great if we're faithful. Guys, we live in a time in which if we're faithful, we're promised persecution, not peace and security. So under the new covenant, which we're happy to live in, our sins are forgiven, God holds nothing against us, we're in Christ, we're saved forever. But under that covenant, listen to this from Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 verse 3, Remember, this is Paul's last letter. Paul's in prison and he's going to be executed before long. He says this to Timothy, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That, Timothy, we're in a spiritual warfare and you're a soldier and you need to look at life significantly so like a soldier in battle and you need to be willing and you need to be primed in your mind to suffer because that's the call. You're a soldier in Christ's army. Suffering is part of the deal. In that same chapter, verse 9, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> uh, Paul says of himself, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. So he's in prison when he writes this. Now what, what wrong has he done? 
He's done no wrong. He's proclaimed the gospel. He's lived a moral, ethical, upright life. And he's in prison because of it. He says, I'm suffering persecution. And guys, in case we miss the point, chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He didn't say except Americans. He didn't say except those who live in the West in the modern age. He said if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, your expectation is persecution. That's the expectation. And we want to remind ourselves, the reason I think that we have this uh, naive, often naive view of life and our expectations are so unbiblical is because we've lived in a place and a time in which biblical morality or religion that somehow took into account one true God and Christ was the norm. So if that's your history and that's the norm, you start feeling like blue sky and green lights are, sh- are what I should expect. This is life as I know it. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but even in that setting, even in our historic Western civilization setting, remember that this is the same world that crucified Jesus. And so he promised his disciples, if I'm persecuted and you're my follower, you will be too. So we should come as born-again believers in Jesus, understanding our heritage is not a promise of easy living. The promise is persecution. That's the expectation. And again, the only reason that we've been able to think otherwise is because of the time and the period we've lived in. And I want to say quickly... um, persecution, and and this is one of the reasons, you know, every Sunday we pray for persecuted Christians in other parts of the world. Uh, Hebrews 13, I think it is, says, remember those who are in prison. He's talking about Christians in prison, like Paul was. Or 1 Corinthians 12 says, if one member of the body suffers, they all suffer. We're to remember those who, like us, are in Christ, but are suffering persecution. We pray for that. That's going on, guys, now. There are martyrs being More martyrs being martyred today than way back in the day when we think of Roman persecution. The population of the earth, of course, is much bigger as well. But persecution is the expectation and it's the norm for Christians around the world today, just as David experienced, just as was promised to us through Paul. By the way, I do think that we've seen a pivot, not just in the United States, but in the West, and I think uh, Christians should be putting on our big boy pants because persecution and suffering for Christ's name, I have little doubt, is on its way here. The culture has shifted. It is not the friendly to Christianity culture that existed historically for most of us. That is quickly waning. And whatever Christians do, remember we're always a called out group. Christians are not the United States and the United States is not the church. The church makes up a small part of these United States. But they are not the same thing. And the country, the culture of the country is becoming more and more bold in rejecting not only Christ, but any claims to truth, morality, ultimate anything that all works against Christians who say there's one God, the Shema here, there's one God, and Christ is our Savior and we follow Him. This puts us in more and more opposition to the culture around us. So Christians need to, I think today, looking forward, take on this theme from Paul and David's experience that the norm going forward may very well be, even in our lifetimes, may be a a scope, a depth, or breadth of persecution that has not been the norm in the West before. 
But I suspect we're going to see some of that coming around the corner. So David is being persecuted, not just again, like Psalm 56, here's one and then here's the other, but still, and he calls out to God for mercy and grace adequate to sustain him. And we want to do that same thing, guys. Sometimes my prayer is just this, Lord, would you hide me? You know, hide me from my own temptations, hide me from harm, hide me from the circumstances in which it's not going to be your cause that's being elevated. Uh, hide me. Well, that's David's prayer here. I need mercy, and Lord, would you be my hiding place until this trouble's passed over? Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah there probably means stop and think about this, meditate on this. And then finally, God will send out his steadfast love, <clears throat> excuse me, and his faithfulness. So notice David's confidence in God and God's determination to save him. Look at verse 2. David addresses God as God most high. So Mark mentioned in the introduction that, you know, you're living in a pagan culture. There are gods all over. People worship all kinds of gods. So when David prays, he says, God, I know something that's true about you. You are God most high. You are the God above every other claimant to God. So you're the power above all powers. You're the God above all gods. So as he's crying out for mercy, he's crying out to the one that he knows can give it. That if God gives deliverance and mercy, nothing and no one can keep David from receiving that because he's praying to God, not just God, not El, but God Most High, the Most High God, the power above all powers. There in verse 2 as well, notice he says this. This is a tie to last week's message. It's on 56. God who fulfills his purpose for me. Remember last week we said David had a confidence born of God's word. He said, I praise God for his word because there were elements of God's word, perhaps through the prophet Samuel, perhaps through the Old Testament David had known and memorized, was familiar with, that he knew God would intervene and would spare his life from God's word. Well, here he puts in a little different language. He says there in verse 2, a God who fulfills his purpose for me. God fulfills his purpose for me. And this is part of what gives David confidence. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, this theme that God will fulfill his purpose for David is true not only for David, but it's true for you and I as well. And this is one of the things that gives me a personally great confidence, not necessarily what life looks like, but that, that my life is under divine protection, and so is yours. My life, now not the condition under which I'm living so much, but my life and yours are under divine protection until God says his purposes for us are complete on this earth. That God has purposes for David, and David knows they haven't been fulfilled. He hasn't ruled as king yet. But guys, it may not be as specific. God hasn't said to you and I, this is what I'm going to do with you in the future. But until God's purposes for you and through you are fulfilled, your life cannot be destroyed. Your time on earth will not last, it will not be shortened. And by the way, it will not last longer than God has decreed already as well. Verse 3, God will send, God will put to shame, God will send to David his loyal, faithful love. So he says, I know that because your purposes aren't complete. Psalm 138.8 says this, 
the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Similar thought. Psalm 31.15, I used to have this on my hard copy calendars. My times are in your hands. My times are in your hands. David had a confidence born of knowing God had purposes for him. And so no matter Saul's best efforts, David was not going to die. His life could not be taken until God said God's purposes for David, in David and through David, were fulfilled. We are in this limited sense invincible until God's time, till he calls us home. And we're saying this principally of life and breath on earth, not of health, not of wealth, not of pleasant circumstances, right? There are Christians in prison today, last week, uh, reading um, on the I Commit to Pray on Voice of the Martyrs. They were talking about Christians who have been held in boxes in the desert sun for almost 20 years. I think ben- Benin, B-E-N-I-N, was the country. The Christians that were arrested uh, 19 years ago, they don't know if they're still there. But that's where they were 19 years ago. They were put in prison for being Christians in boxes in the sun. That was their experience. Now, their life was still there, right? But their setting wasn't pleasant and wasn't what they would have desired or you or I would either. So we're not saying God's guaranteeing us happy conditions while we're here. But we are saying, like David, that our life is immune to death until God says, his purposes are complete. Matter of fact, if you think of Jesus on the cross, you know, what does he say? It is finished, right? That sin-bearing role. He didn't die until he could say, it's finished. God's purposes for my incarnation here. Resurrection hasn't happened, of course. But that sin-bearing role was complete as he passed. Jesus knew he wouldn't die at a time or a manner other than his father's appointment. The Apostle Paul was facing death by execution in Rome. This is 2 Timothy 4, 6. While at the same time he looked back and said that the Lord had delivered him from every former persecution so that he could finish the race of life God had given him. If you know 2 Timothy also, Paul says, I have finished the race. He knows execution is imminent. But put it in this perspective. Uh, Life is like a race, and God has put the race course out for each one of us, and we don't die. Our life here is secure, so to speak, until our race is finished. And my finish line is not the same as yours. But Paul knew, God has set me on a course, and I'm right near the end. And I want to finish well, and I'm going to run through the end, and I'll finish my course. Well, that's true for all of us. God has a race course, if you will, a track that we're on until he says this is the finish line, not before. If you read uh, stories of Teddy Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, which are uh, hugely encouraging to Mike, these guys were fearless, literally with bullets blazing around them. They were captive. They were were in, uh, not a slave camp, but a prisoner of war camp. And yet they lived with this fearlessness because they had a sense that they were called by God and destiny to this life of help to the world around them. In fact, Churchill said he had this sense of walking hand in hand, I think his word was, with destiny as he led England and the West in World War II. They were fearless because they believed they had a purpose that would not 
end their life early, they would live long enough to fully achieve the purposes God had set for them. So we can live with that same confidence David had. Again, it's not the quality of what life looks like in the moment. It's life itself that we're talking about here. God not only keeps our tears, we talked about this last week, Psalm 56, keeps our tears of rem- in, in his jar of remembrance. You remember, collect my tears, Lord, so you know what my suffering has been like. But he numbers and appoints all our days or ordains the length of our time. Listen to this from Psalm 139.16. David wrote, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That God's appointed the days he would spend on earth before his birth. From the womb, he says, God set my days out in order. Job 14.5 is even more specific. Job wrote this of man, uh, of us, since his days are determined. And the, the thought here is it's somebody has cut something to length. So your days on earth have been cut to length. They've been determined by God. The number of his months, not just years, but even months, is with you. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. So Job says two things. One, you won't die before God's determined. And the flip side is, you won't live beyond the limit God's established for your life. You're not going to die. You're not going to end your time on earth before God says it's time. Before His purposes for your life are fulfilled, are accomplished. So there's a, there's a happy sense in which with David or with Paul, we should have a, a sublime sense of divine protection, not on, on how much we can enjoy life in the moment, but on our purpose and time on the earth. God's in control of that. And we're here until God says otherwise. David knew that. He knew God's purposes haven't been fulfilled. He's going to continue to live. You see the same thing implied. Ephesians 2.10, God has ordained good works for us to accomplish. Ephesians 2 says, you know, we were dead. God made us alive and he saved us by his grace through faith. And then that section concludes by saying, and so we were dead. He saved us. Okay, that's good. It's a grace gift through faith. That's great. And he saved you because he has things. This is in part. This isn't the total thing, right? But he saved you in part because he has things he's ordained for you to do. So as long as we're drawing breath, we can ask God on any given day, Lord, what is it you have for me to do today? What are your purposes for me to do today? He has purpose for us. Till we draw our last breath, God has purpose for our life. Look at verses 4 through 6. This is a slight, this is as much as David gives us on a description of what persecution in that moment looked like. And, and then it it's, uh, sandwiches this, this initial uh, praise to God. So verse 4, he said, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, like, like lying down next to dragons. Uh, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. Then he breaks. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Then he goes back. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but 
they have fallen into it themselves, say law or pause or consider. So on one hand, you've got in verses 4 and 6 this description, pretty brief, of suffering and persecution. And in the middle of it, you've got this crazy expression, this expulsion of this brief line of praise. So in these verses, you have lament. This is the challenge of my life in the moment. And in the middle of the lament, you have this crazy praise, which is going to introduce the praise that closes out the psalm as well. So to David, what does it feel like? What's his experience of persecution? He said, it's like a lion is chasing me. You know, you think of a lion with the fangs and the teeth, the claws, the the power, the weight they have. He said, I feel like I'm being chased by a lion. That would be terrifying, wouldn't it? Or it's like the beasts around me are fire breathers. It's like dragons around me. He says their words, you know, it says their uh, teeth, their tongues, so spears, arrows, swords not only reflect what they have in their hand but it's the it's the things they say about David and the the things they say to David and then verse 6 Saul and his soldiers are constantly trying to trap David you'll notice in 1 Samuel that he continues to have these experiences where at one occasion he's on one side of the mountain hiding and Saul's on the other and God tells him run this way because they're coming around the mountain they're going to get you there's another occasion in which he's in the city of Keilah and he's happy to stay there for a while, but, but Saul hears that he's there. And David realized this, so David says to the Lord, Lord, should I stay here, or will the people of the town give me up to you? And God says, they'll give you up. So he says, he, he better run, he better flee, because Saul says to himself, I'll trap him in a cage. The city will be his ending, his undoing, because he won't be able to escape. So this was the norm he, where he talks about in verse 6, constantly trying to trap David, get him in a corner where he cannot escape. So it's helpful if you put this in your own language, the own experience you have in life, what does it look like or what does it feel like in my times of suffering, whether that's persecution or it could be any one of a number of things, life is hard, life is challenging, what does it look like? Uh, some people, I'm under a cloud of depression, I feel hopeless. Uh, Sometimes it might be like I have a crushing weight on my shoulders. I can't get off. David knows that no matter what's going on, God is adequate to take care of his challenge in that moment, his persecution. And the same should be true for us. On your study sheet, there's some questions about that. What what does it look like for me? What does it feel like? And how does God want to intervene in that? What, What is it that I need to recall that sets my mind on the right path about how God wants to intervene and interact in my challenges. Excuse me. Now, verse 5. Even as David remembers Saul's attempt to catch him, he breaks out in this sudden shout of praise. It's almost schizophrenic. So you've you've got verse 4 and verse 6, and in the middle of it, it's the antithesis. Lord, I'm really suffering. This is really hard. Saul's really trying to get me. And in the middle he says, oh, and God bless your name forever. May you be exalted forever. But it does set up, it sets up the end of the psalm. And it's really here that he turns from lament to praise. So lament turns to praise even as he's thinking about the difficulties he's facing in the moment. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Uh, 
We want to say to this, prayer and praise are better than swords and spears in the spiritual battles we wage. Praising God reminds us that He is above all other powers and He's able to save. You remember, that's why He says God most high. Uh, praise brings us a sense of God's presence. We'll talk about this again as we wind down, but um, the King James Version, which I usually don't read from, the, the way it treats Psalm 22, verse 3, 24, verse 22, 3, says God inhabits the praises of Israel. God inhabits the praises of of his people inhabits there. Uh, others say God reigns or he rests, but the, the thought is, though God is in all places at all times, we, our experience of God uh, can change. And one of the ways it changes is when, when we are personally praising God or where we are in the context of God's people praising God, we have a special experience of God's presence. God inhabits the praise of his people. Hopefully, more than once, you've had the experience, if you're in this church or you're in other settings, and you're worshiping and praising, you have this sense of God's very presence with you, or God showing up or comforting you or speaking to you in ways that weren't happening before, but it's, it's the way God interacts with us as we praise, personally, privately, or corporately. We experience God in a renewed way when we praise. Also, praising God, guys, is an act of humility, even and maybe especially in the midst of suffering. God says he's opposed to the proud. If you and I say to ourselves, persecution, suffering, trial, whatever is coming, and I can, and I can do this. I can get through this. I used to, uh, uh, I loved working with a guy years ago. <clears throat> Talked about the gospel. And uh, he said, uh, I got through Vietnam, I'll get through hell. His thought was, I, I endured Vietnam, I can get through hell. And I said, well, I, those are not the same thing, and, and one, is, one is not the other. Um, that's not quite the perspective we want to bring on this. We, want to, we don't want to say in the midst of our trials, I can do this on my own. It's proud. You know, we said last week, God engineers, guys, circumstances in your life and mine in which we're going to be faced with circumstances we don't have the ability to cope with. And he does it so that we do what David says here, Lord, I'm running to hide in you. It's humbling. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what does God do for the humble? <clears throat> he exalts the humble. Exactly. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Says it twice, James 4 and 1 Peter 5. So we praise is a way of actively submitting ourselves to God and humbling ourselves before God, which in a sense liberates God to come in and give us his grace and mercy, which is what David was praying for. Praising God in the midst of suffering and persecution is an act of faith that says we're more than our circumstances and our future in Christ is sure. We're more, our life is more than the circumstances we're in, and we trust Christ for the rest. Verses 7 through 11, winding down, uh, he says, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will wake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, not just in Israel, but to the nations. 
For, for this reason, your steadfast love is great to the heavens, not just on the earth. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Not just the land of promise, but over all the earth. So in anticipation of God's deliverance, David isn't cowed by Saul's threats, but his praise is like a coal. You know, if you have a coal on the edge of a fire, you put it back in, it can burst back into flame. That's exactly what happens with David and his praise to God. He's so jazzed. Uh, if you guys have roosters, do you know they don't wait for the sun to come above the horizon? Right? <laughs> roosters are illegal in the, in the city limits of Topeka for a reason, because your neighbors don't want to hear them. But, but that's, uh, that's sort of like David's theme here. He says, I'm so jazzed about getting up to offer God praise. I can't wait till the morning light. I'm going to rise early. I'm going to grab my guitar or my sitar or my lyre. And I'm going to bring the new day in praising God. Now, we've talked about quiet times, devotions, reading your Bible first thing in the morning. What a great way to start any day, every day. And to that, you can add praising God as the way of starting your day. Whether you think of that as I'm giving thanks, or I'm, some people sing in the morning, they sing to God. But starting our day that way, that's what David says. I'm so enthusiastic about God, His goodness, and His commitment to give me His mercy in my challenge. I can't wait for the sunrise. I'm going to be up before the sun. I'm going to start the new day praising God. Verse 3, back in verse 3, David articulated the things he knew God would do. So, God will send from heaven and save me. God will put to shame him who tramples me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So David says, Lord, I know you're going to do these things. And so in response, David says, Lord, I'm going to do some things as well. Verse 7, I will sing and make melody. Verse 8, I will wake the dawn with God's praise. Verse 9, I will give thanks, I will sing praises. So in confidence about what God will do, David's praise is raised because of confidence in God. Confidence in God and God's salvation and the completion of God's purposes for David have moved him from a plea of mercy to a declaration of praise. I don't know if you've had an occasion where you've prayed to God for something and you know the Spirit of God informs your mind or you read something in Scripture and you know God is speaking, that God's going to take care of it. And don't you get a sense of peace and thankfulness and praise where you just say, thank you, Lord. Thanks that you're going to take care of this. That's what David's doing. Guys, sometimes in prayer, probably more often than not, this is typically true in our home group, when we pray, we first give thanks or we first praise God. That's the norm. As we come before God... We thank God and we praise Him. And then we talk about our supplications, the things that we want to bring to God's attention for ourselves or for others. But guys, in David's experience here and sometimes in your experience and mine as well, whatever's going on is so overwhelming and so acute, we don't get to the praise first. We just say, Lord, we need help. You know, again, for David, it's God mercy, which is great. David, he's the example for that. We don't know what to do. We're strung out. God, we need your mercy. Would you help? Help me, Lord. That's fine. We don't want to just leave it there, though. More often than not, 
even in the challenging things we've got, when we've come to God first with our need, our cry for help, let that lead us to praise just as it did to David. So don't stop at the request, but then keep going into the praise, which is what David modeled. You see this uh, lived out by Paul in Acts 16.25. He's in jail, you remember, and it says, the text says, they prayed and then they sang. They prayed and then they sang. Uh, even when experiencing persecution, David is so confident in God, so enthusiastic regarding his mercy, greatness, and glory that he's not just thinking about his deliverance in the moment, but he's praising God far and wide to his own people, the Jews, beyond them to the nations, and beyond them to the ends of the earth and the limits of, hell, of heaven itself. Uh, David is so enthusiastic that he, not just in Israel, not just to the Jews, he says, no, I'm going to proclaim your name and your greatness as far and wide as I can. Uh, to the troubled soul, David's rousing praise may sound like an unreachable goal. This, I want to qualify this just slightly. Um, if I say you're, uh, whatever, the bottom falls out of your life, and so you go to God and you say, mercy God, and then, and then you remember, oh, and Mike said I'm supposed to praise. And you might say, uh, that's just not working for me right now. Then I'd tell you, that that's okay. That's okay. Um, if all you can do is pray and say, help me, Lord, and that's it, that may be okay in the moment. Guys, there's one psalm that has no gleam, no glimmer of hope in it. And I think there's a reason for that. We'll probably look at that on another day, Psalm 88. There's no, there's no glimmer of hope. So if that's where we're at and that's all we can do, uh, that's okay. 2 Corinthians says, weep with those who weep. Uh, there's a proverb that talks about if you, if you come and you try and get somebody to sing with you, it's like it's the worst thing in the world that could happen for them. So this requires some sensitivity on our part, especially towards others. But if we find ourselves in a point of need like David, and we say, I can only get to God to say I need your help, uh, the other thing you can do, even if you can't praise, you can listen to praise. <clears throat> you can listen to praise and your atmosphere will change and your mindset will change and your thoughts will change even if you're not singing and you're not clapping, but all you're doing is hearing it, guys, you'll be changed. Here's another thing you can do. Usually if we're feeling down for whatever reason, a sin's got us down, uh, health has got us down, uh, expectations have failed, and we don't want to go join other saints on Sunday morning because it sounds like it requires too much of us. I understand, I understand that. But this is what you can still do. You can come in just a little late. You can sit in the back row. I'm not indicting anyone on the back row when I say this. <laughs> sit in the back row. <laughs> And you can just sit and soak while the church praises and while God's word is taught. And guess what? You'll be changed and you'll be raised up. And the atmosphere in your mind and your thoughts and your affections, your emotions, they will be helped. So even if we say uh, that model sounds good, but when the bottom falls out, I can't get there, then I'd say, okay, well, don't, don't get there, but put on some praise and worship music. 
or go to the service when you'd rather stay home knowing I can sit and soak. Guys, one of the things about the Good Friday service, this is also true about Bill's hymn sings. This is my confession to Bill. I'm making it public. Sometimes when I come to the hymn sings, guys, I don't sing. I just sit there. I just sit there. And I just listen to other people sing and I listen to the lyrics. And I'm, I don't think there's one of those. I haven't been weeping because the truth of the lyrics in the, in the context of praise is so beneficial. It's so uplifting. That same thing, a little different, but on the Good Friday service, the whole theme of that is you come and you soak in the story about what Jesus did for us. So it affects you because you have the chance to just sit down and the reality of who Jesus is and what he did, what he's willing to do for us, you're just meditating that moment. Well, it changes you. You go out more thankful. You go out more sober because you think of what our sin cost Christ. It changes us. So even if we can't rise personally to praise God, get with others who can. Or turn on your radio or your app and listen to praise music. It will change where your mind's at, where your affections and your heart are at. Proverbs says, a joyful heart is like good medicine and so is praise. Now by all means, we should cry out to God for mercy in times of lament, but more often than not, we should also move to praise. That should still be what we're looking to do when we can. David spoke to that same theme of laments, turning to praise earlier in Psalm 30. I'm winding down with this thought. So listen to this from Psalm 30. Sing praises to the Lord, O you saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment. And David was probably feeling God's anger in the moment. His anger is just a moment, but His favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. David's talking about the challenging times of life, and he says... A weeping, this time of sadness or challenge, may last for a while, but remember in the morning when he rises to praise, joy comes with the morning. He then says down in verse 11 and 12, to God, you have turned for me my mourning, my sadness into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. Remember that emblem or that symbol of lament, of mourning, of sadness. You have clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. God has done these things that my glory may sing your praise. God's exalted and we're lifted up when that's what we're doing. The reason all our laments ultimately end in praise, guys, is because Christ has conquered sin and Satan and death and all that attends those enemies in His death and resurrection. We're New Testament saints. We know the end of the story. So we're not just like David. It's not mercy in Yahweh only. No, it's mercy through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In His resurrection, Jesus overcame our worst nightmares, our greatest dreads, the trials and persecutions that seem to last through our own personal long nights. In Christ, ultimately, every tear is wiped away and every lament is turned to praise. Guys, the days of weeping, they will be over. And maybe not long for some of us or all of us. Days of weeping, times of weeping, give way to eternal joy.
We have a hope greater than David's in a temporary relief from persecution. We will see Christ as he is and will be like him and will be in his presence forever where there is fullness of joy and the pleasures are forevermore. We can say to our souls in the midst of our trials, persecutions, and laments, David's words from a song we started this current series in January from Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So guys, if laments the, the, the course God served you up for today, it's okay. That's part of life on planet earth. But lament can turn to praise and sorrow turns to joy. That's true for us all eternally. Well, with that, if you would rise, I want to close by reading together from 1 Peter 5 because it brings together several of these elements. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's read together. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, strengthen, and establish you to Him be glory. Amen. Amen.